day, everyone. And thank you to the Rural Alberta Advantage for that great introductory music. Rick Cole here with this week's episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, brought to you by newspapers.com, the world's largest online archive of historical newspapers, and by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, makers of the finest craft beers and pub food in the Niagara region. In this week's show, we have news and notes from the period between November 23rd and November 30th of the 1969 hockey season. Some of the stories that we have include uh, the expansion franchises in Vancouver and Buffalo closer to becoming a reality. We have a story out of Baltimore about what they think about having what withdrawn from the expansion process because of the exorbitant fees the NHL was charging. We have news about charges laid by the Ottawa police against Wayne Mackey and Ted Green for that stick-swinging duel that took place in St. Louis or in Ottawa on September 21st. We have a little bit of news out of Philadelphia where coach Vic Stasiuk and one of his players were not getting along. A lot of the players privately had been saying in Philadelphia they didn't like uh, Stasiak's hard-nosed coaching style. Punch Imlach wrote some interesting things about Eddie Shack this week, and we'll talk about that. We have Ren Blair, the Minnesota North Stars. They're very talkative uh, general manager coach. He'll talk to one of the newspaper reporters from Minneapolis, Dan Stone King, where he basically rates the rinks and the crowds around the NHL, and we got lots more. Well, we've been doing this podcast thing for a little over a month now, and I have to say it's been the most rewarding and educational experience. I've learned more this time than I think I've, I've learned in the last 10, 15 years. I thank each and every one of you who've listened and tuned in, and I hope you continue to follow along with our little exercise in time travel. We're getting better at this as we gain experience. We'll get even better as time goes on. We have some fun and interesting features planned in the future. Now, I heard from an old friend this week uh, who asked me why, why I'm even doing this project, and I thought it might be a good time to talk about that right here. Now, as I've said before, I've always had a keen interest in broadcasting, news reporting. Uh, I considered myself a, a news junkie at a very, very young age. Uh, once I got out of high school, I went into university and I studied journalism. I wanted to be a sports writer or a broadcaster. Life takes different turns. Mine took some uh, really different turns, and they ended up in a fine career in, in uh, law enforcement, and I don't regret that one bit. Uh, both of my kids have ended up in the media business. They've had great careers, and uh, they've been very successful. And I always thought that someday I'd venture into that industry and that's sort of finally happening, even at this late date in my lifetime. Now, there's some simple explanations as to why I'm expending all this time and energy on this product. First and foremost, the most important thing, it makes me happy. I love hockey history, and I really enjoy putting out these nude items, news items from the past, which other hockey fans might not be aware of. So doing this makes my life just a little bit better, 
and not at great expense to someone else. One of the more gratifying benefits from the Twitter and podcast project has been the comments, questions, and acknowledgments from the relatives of players and media from the 50 years ago time period. I'm I'm actually amazed at how many people have reached out to me. It's really a boost uh, to know that we've evoked some nice memories for children and even grandchildren of the players of that era. And we've even heard from a few of the players who are thankfully still with us from 50 years ago, and they've heard about what we do. Some of them I've even managed to talk to, and we'll have them on future podcasts when we get into our interview shows. So if we're providing a bit of enjoyment for all these folks, then I guess we're on the right track. I guess what I'm saying is if you have a passion for something, if it's something good, something that gives you satisfaction, and will maybe make someone else smile with a good thought or memory, then do your best to translate that passion into something real, something tangible, and something good. That's why I do this. The biggest story in this final week of November, probably the biggest story in the National Hockey League season of 1969-70, was the ongoing NHL expansion process. On November 27th, the Vancouver province reported that a giant step had been taken to ensure an NHL franchise would finally be awarded to Vancouver. Clancy Laranger, uh, the province hockey writer, was the one who had the scoop, and here's what he had to say. Vancouver moved one giant step closer to membership in the National Hockey League as the directors of the Pacific National Exhibition unanimously approved a revised lease agreement Wednesday with the Vancouver Hockey Club. Now, for the time being, that's the Western Hockey League, Vancouver Hockey Club. That removed the last obstacle to that city's entry into the NHL as one of two expansion teams for the 1970-71 season. All that was needed then at that point was an official announcement from NHL President Clarence Campbell, and that would probably come, they felt, within a couple days of the December 1st application deadline that the league had set for new franchises. President Tom Scallum of Medicor, which is the Medical Investment Corporation of Minneapolis, Minnesota, was scheduled to meet with the National Hockey League's Expansion Committee on December 1st in New York. Then the NHL governors were to meet and possibly plan an announcement within the next couple of days. Now, Clarence Campbell is already on record saying that Medicor is, quote, very acceptable to the governors, so that leaves only a formality of the down payment of $1.75 million on the $6 million entry fee. Cyrus McLean, he's the President Western Hockey League Canucks president, said that there's very little to be done to complete the transfer of ownership. McLean says everything's pretty well in hand. Some of us, meaning the present Canucks directors, would be staying in, said McLean. He said there's myself, Coley Hall, Max Bell, Frank McMahon, and a few others who would be in for a 25 to 30% stake in the club. Now, reportedly, according to Clancy, uh, the few others would include current general manager coach Joe Crozier. Crozier had a long talk with Medicor vice president Lyman Walters just a couple days before this report. 
McLean said he expected both Scallon and Walters to return to Vancouver sometime in the middle of December to button everything up, and at that time, officers in the club would be named. Now, the very next day, it all became very much more real. On the November 28th uh, edition of the Buffalo Courier Express, Charlie Barton, their ace hockey reporter who comes up with so many of these scoops, announced that Buffalo has a franchise in the National Hockey League, and as Charlie said, the impossible dream is no longer in danger of becoming a nightmare again. Barton had this to say. Clarence Campbell, president of the NHL, confirmed the appointments yesterday, and the Board of Governors and the Expansion Committee would ratify them at a special meeting in New York sometime after December 1st. The Buffalo team would begin operations in the 1970-71 season and will be headed by Seymour H. Knox III and his brother Northrop of Buffalo. They had made an abortive attempt at a franchise in the original expansion program three years ago when the league went from 6 to 12 teams. Now, Campbell had been speaking to a service club in Toronto, I believe it was a Kiwanis club, and he said that he was satisfied that the Vancouver uh, interests, which included Medicore Investment Company of Minneapolis, would present a satisfactory application by the December 1st deadline. We learned at this time that Buffalo's franchise had been in for a little while and was completely uh, approved by the governors. Campbell told the... Uh, service club in Toronto, a somewhat Canadian-oriented city will be receiving the second franchise, namely Buffalo, New York. Alluding to its proximity to the Canadian border, Campbell added, this means more NHL games will be accessible to many more Canadians than we have at the present time. Now, you have to remember, in 1967, there was a great hue and cry when Vancouver was turned down for one of the six new teams uh, in favor of six American cities. There were people that actually were going to take the matter to the Prime Minister of Canada in an effort to force the NHL to take on the Vancouver City. This time, it's going to be a reality. Now, the six teams admitted three years ago were all in the new Western Division, as everybody knows. When the league becomes a 14-team circuit next year, Chicago will move to the Western Division with those six teams admitted in 1967. Buffalo and Vancouver will then join the Eastern Circuit with Toronto, Montreal, Detroit, Boston, and New York. Robert O. Suaros, attorney and spokesperson for the Knox Group, said, We're gratified to hear these reports, but we think it would be premature to make any further comment until certain procedures have been completed and until the league meetings, which are next week. Now, when the Knox brothers were unable to obtain a franchise three years ago, they made a bid to purchase and transfer the financially troubled Oakland Seals franchise to the Queen City. That failed. The uh, governors would hear nothing of it. So the Knoxes, in good faith, became minority stockholders in the Seals, and that, of course, endeared them greatly to the governors of the big league. 
The Knoxes, allied with others in western New York, reportedly still own 20% of the seals, and a New York-based communications firm controls the rest of it. Now, the Knoxes will have to sell their interests in the seals before the local team can become a reality, and that's thought to be a mere formality. Now, there is some question as to where this new Buffalo hockey team would play. There is a proposed dome stadium in Lancaster, which is a suburb of Buffalo out near the airport. It has uh, vastly improved the city's image in the eyes of the sports world, and it's likely that there's going to be an arena in this sports entertainment complex, but the National Hockey League is not really enamored with the idea of sharing a facility with uh, other sports like baseball, football, and basketball. Charlie Barton said the Courier Express had learned that the NHL was actually opposed to that dome stadium and that the Knox Group is negotiating a 10-year lease with a five-year option with the City of Buffalo for use of Memorial Auditorium. Now, Memorial Auditorium seats a little over 9,000 fans. It's It's a great rink to watch hockey, but the NHL insists that their rinks seat no less than 12500 A sum of $4.5 million will be spent by the Buffalo hockey team owners to increase the seating to 15,000 people. The auditorium, as we've said, is fully accepted, uh, acceptable to the NHL, and they're endorsing this plan. Charlie Barton uh, talked about some of the personnel that should be employed by these new teams in his report. Now, he said that Joe Crozier, who's the general manager and coach of the Vancouver Canucks of the Western League and well-known to hockey fans in Western New York from his time with the Rochester Americans of the AHL, uh, he is supposed to be a, a, a significant stockholder in the Vancouver club, and he's expected to remain with that team when it moves to the NHL in an important executive capacity. Punch Imlach, that former general manager coach of the Maple Leafs, has also been rumored to own a significant part of the Western Hockey League team, and everyone's pretty sure he's going to end up in Vancouver as well. As as for the Buffalo team, uh, they're going to have to assemble front office staff pretty quickly in order to to get up to speed with what players might or might not be available and how they're going to build a club. Fred Hunt who is the AHL Bison's longtime general manager, is expected to remain with the new organization in an undetermined capacity. I don't think Freddie will make it as the general manager there. The Buffalo Bison's coach is Fred Shiro, and he's one of the most successful minor league mentors in the game. He will be considered for the new NHL team, but Fred is a New York organization man through and through with long and meritorious service, and he's not likely to switch to a new uh, operation without a significant salary and a long-term contract. Meanwhile, they're not happy in Baltimore, where they withdrew their application for a franchise because the price tag of $6 million was just too high. The president of the American League Baltimore Clippers acknowledged that a player raid on the National Hockey League was being considered by his city and by other centers across the United States. 
Robert C. Embry said, don't think it hasn't been thought of when the subject was broached at a meeting of the Baltimore Sports Reporters Association. He says it will be the subject of a lot of discussion in the future, but of course something like that always comes up when franchise prices are too high. Embry said that the Baltimore organization has been approached several times on the matter, once by people in the hockey business from big cities not in the NHL who wanted to actually hold a meeting in Denver. They were invited to go to Denver. The meeting was all slated for dates and everything. But he says, we didn't go, and I don't know if the meeting ever did come off. We're not encouraging thoughts of a raid, but we're listening with interest in case anything develops. In defense of this $6 million price tag, Clarence Campbell defended the exorbitant, what some people are calling the exorbitant price. Campbell says that St. Louis, Minnesota, and the Philadelphia franchises are now worth $15 million today. The NHL president was defending the $6 million price tag, as we mentioned. Campbell gave the Toronto Star that figure in advance of his address, what we mentioned before at the Kiwanis Club at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto. On November 23rd, some very serious news came out of Ottawa, Ontario, and it made a lot of people around the hockey world pretty upset. Hockey players Ted Green and Wayne Mackey were charged with assault-causing bodily harm as a result of that stick-swinging duel in Ottawa in that exhibition game on September 21st. The charges against Mackey, who at this particular particular time was playing with the Buffalo Bisons of the AHL and Green with the Bruins but unable to play because of the fractured skull might just have been unprecedented in hockey history and historians were scurrying to see if other people had been charged in uh, any similar events. An NHL spokesman said in Montreal that a check of records that they had showed no previous cases of charges against players for an on-ice incident. The charges were sworn Friday by the Ottawa City Police before Justice of the Peace D.J. Maloney. Summonses have been mailed to the players, but there was no indication of when the case would go to court. The charges carry a two-year maximum jail sentence. Now, there was a crowd of about 10,000 at the Ottawa Civic Center, and they saw the first period incident in the exhibition game we spoke of. Green was struck on the right side of the head, sank to the ice, and was carried out on a stretcher. Well, that's not actually true, but that's what the Canadian press reported that day. Green, as we know, was able to leave the ice under his own power. A lot of people were upset that the, the arrest had taken place. Uh, Buffalo General Manager Fred Hunt said that he was surprised by the charges. I don't know why they're harassing him, said Hunt. I don't think either player would intentionally hurt somebody. I honestly think that when an incident doesn't involve spectators, we are adequately supplied with rules and regulations to handle it. Now, Boston Bruins uh, injured defenseman Ted Green was spoken to by Kevin Walsh of the Boston Globe and he was advised by his lawyer to issue a no comment about the action of the Ottawa police. Bob Wolf, the lawyer, said, I'm really shocked. He visited the Ottawa uh, constabulary while visiting Green in the hospital in Ottawa in early October. Wolf said 
They told me they had no plans to press charges. I'd gone there to inform the police that Green had instructed me to tell them he had no intention of taking criminal action against Wayne Mackey. I did it as a precautionary measure. I talked to the officers, and they told me they had run a routine examination. They didn't seem to be too concerned and told me they'd probably rely on Clarence Campbell's decision. I'm shocked because the police chief wrote and acknowledged my visits and told me that if they contemplated any action, they'd notify us in advance, and I haven't heard from the Ottawa police since that day. Mr. Wolf went on to say, how much more can Ted Green be penalized? Mr. Campbell was very stringent and more so than anticipated. Now, Green's summons was probably sent to his home in Transcona, Manitoba, and it'll be a few more days before he actually gets to read it since he's in Boston at this particular time for more medical checkups at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Everyone who was a Toronto hockey fan in the 1960s knows about what seemed to be a bitter feud that existed between rambunctious Eddie Shack and Toronto Maple Leafs coach, general manager at the time, Punch Imlach. Punch now writes a column for the Toronto Telegram, at least he did in 1969, and he talked about Eddie in his November 26 column. Here's what he had to say. My first exposure to Eddie Shack was when I was coaching Springfield of the American Hockey League. We were playing against Providence, who had just received from the New York Rangers a much-heralded rookie out of junior hockey by the name of Eddie Shack. That night, he played the way everyone in the NHL and television audiences have become accustomed to. He was all over the ice, very spirited, and very exuberant. On one of his wild forays up the ice, he met head-on with a real tough defender by the name of Jack Bionda. Now, for those of you who wouldn't remember that name, Jack was a tough-as-nails, hard-rock defenseman and one of the fiercest body-checkers in hockey at that time in the 1950s. Jack was on loan to Springfield from the Boston Bruins. It was a colossal collision, and the result was that Shaq was put out for over a month with a cracked bone in his leg. Now, the next year, Shaq started his career with the Rangers. Uh, He was later traded to the Detroit Red Wings with Bill Gadsby for the great Red Kelly and Billy McNeil. Red refused to report. The deal was called off. And finally, Eddie ended up being traded to Toronto for Johnny Wilson and Pat Hannigan. Now, Punch said that he remembered when Shaq came into his office for the first time as a Maple Leaf. He said they had quite a talk, and uh, he remembered saying, you'll have no trouble with me if you do just what you're told. Just as he was leaving, Eddie apologized for the fact that he could not read or write, and Imlac told him, listen, Eddie, I'm not paying you to read or write, just to play hockey. That's all that counts. Now, Punch talked about Eddie's... uh, illiteracy, and this is what he had to say how he helped take care of that. A few days later, I called him in the office and I said, look, if you'll go to school and learn to read and write, we'll pay the bills. And he said, okay, and for the next two years in his spare time, he took lessons from a brother at the De La Salle College in Toronto. The brother would come in to punch his office and tell him how Eddie was progressing. 
One day when he came in, he showed him a letter that he received from Eddie saying that Shaq was quite proud of his achievement and that he too was very pleased. Punch says, I must admit, it made me feel pretty good. Punch recounts an incident that took place when the Leafs played against the Detroit Red Wings at Maple Leaf Gardens. Jack Adams, he was the general manager of the Red Wings at the time, was sitting in his customary seat right next to the Detroit bench right along the rail by the ice. Now remember in those days, there was no glass protecting the fans or the the other uh, folks in the arena from the players, so there was easy access. Now Adams was a mean son of a gun, uh, not a very nice man, and he could ride players unmercifully. And of course, he was taking care of that with Eddie's uh, lack of being able to read or write. Finally, during the game, though, Eddie got his revenge. He scored a goal and immediately made a beeline right to where uh, Adams was sitting. Then he stopped and quickly uh, sent a, well, he gave a, a snow shower to Adams as he was sitting by the boards. He looked at Adams and he went, score, S-C-O-R-E. Now, this next story had ramifications that went on for a few years. If you were a hockey fan like I was in Canada in the late 60s and early 70s, it was frustrating to watch us send the national team over to Europe for the World Championships in the Olympics just to get our asses kicked. And that's basically what happened every time. Well, this story came out while Canada was preparing to host the World Ice Hockey Championships in Winnipeg and Montreal in the spring of 1970. The International Ice Hockey Federation said that Canada's 20-man roster in the world tournament must include at least 11 Simon Pure amateurs. That came down from J.F. Bunny Ahurd, president of the International Ice Hockey Federation. Ahern said he would personally take steps to prevent any move to stock the Canadian team with professionals. Now, he was commenting on charges by the Soviet communist newspaper Pravda that Canada had planned to find loopholes in tournament regulations to enter a fully professional team. Ahern emphasized that an IIHF ruling last July permitted Canada to use nine professionals, but that's where the problem is. Nobody would define professionals. The rule was intended to cover former pros who have regained their amateur status. The Canadians get nine professionals, he said. I don't care whether they're minor league pros or reinstated professionals. A professional is a professional as far as I'm concerned. But he noted that the ruling provides that none of the Canadians may have played in the National Hockey League during the 1969-70 season. Ahern said if any of those nine players has played a single part in any game in the NHL this season, he will be ruled ineligible. Canada must fill its roster with 11 amateur players who've never, ever been professional. This is the agreement I made with the Canadians, and that's the way it's going to be. Now, Ahern said earlier that part of the reasoning for this is that the International Olympic Committee could possibly force the IIHF to change its standby ruling that all amateur teams would be declared ineligible for Olympic competition if they compete against professionals. 
Ahern said, I hadn't received anything along this line from the IOC, and personally, I don't feel the IOC would make such a ruling. After all, Canada's been using reinstated professionals for years, and it hasn't ruined anyone's eligibility yet. Stay tuned on this one. There are a lot more developments that are going to take place, especially in the new year, regarding Canada's participation in international hockey. This next story has to do with one of the expansion teams, the Philadelphia Flyers, and what looks like what could be a player revolt against coach Vic Stasiak. Stasiak came to the NHL with a reputation as a hard-nosed bench boss who gives no quarter and takes none as well. He spoke with Jack Chevalier of the Philadelphia Inquirer about his team. Here's what he told Jack, we have too many handymen and not enough scorers. It wasn't one of the great revelations of the 20th century to those who have watched the Flyers for three seasons, but it's proof that Coach Stasiuk is aware of the club's urgent problem, namely, they can't put the puck in the net. The Flyers still need a forward, preferably a right winger, who can score 25 goals. Every team in the NHL needs that. The Flyers are no different than anybody General Manager Bud Poyle had a chance to attain a player like that in Chicago's Jim Pappen earlier in the season. Actually, last summer, the Hawks and the uh, Flyers had agreed for a one-on-one trade for Doug Favelle for Pappen, but the Flyers pulled out at the last moment, citing Pappen's lack of skating speed and his age. He's now 30. Players have been complaining because Stasiuk is using four lines instead of the traditional three, and he's been mixing them up. Now, Stasiak said it's no good using four lines when the opposition is using three, because then we get a bad matchup, we start checking line against scoring lines, and the same groups aren't paired together on the next shift. The constant juggling of flyer forwards has caused more confusion than continuity on the offense. Whether our own scores will come around or not, we should look elsewhere for help is the big question now, said Stasiuk. It's getting to the point where certain guys in Quebec deserve a chance because the guys up here aren't doing a job. These won't be welcome words to players on the Flyers, and they weren't to truculent forward Reggie Fleming. Now, anyone who knows Reggie Fleming knows that he has no trouble telling it like it is And he told Coach Vic Stasiak that he's fed up with things that are happening to him and the Flyers lately. In fact, Fleming has gone so far as to inform Stasiak that if things didn't change pretty soon, he wanted the club to get rid of him so he could play hockey somewhere else. Here's what Reggie said to Ed Conrad of the Philadelphia Daily News. I told Vic, play me or trade me. He told me, go see Bud, the general manager. I told him he's a coach and I didn't want to go over his head. Now, there were quite a few things that were irritating Fleming at the time, one of which is the seemingly constant criticism that Stasiak had been heaping upon almost every veteran forward after almost every loss. It's really not the criticism that had Reginoid, but the fact that Vic himself was partially responsible. Now, Fleming told Conrad, if he's going to continue criticizing me and my teammates, then I can't see why I can't criticize him just because he's the coach and I'm the player. As far as I'm concerned, there's a few things about his coaching which I just don't buy. 
Now, Reggie said that Vic's main fault in his rookie season as an NHL coach is a nonsensical juggling of the forward lines. Reg said, it's not only just with me, but with just about every forward on the team. When the team doesn't even have one good set line, we'll be playing our 17th game of the season, and I'm peeved because I'm on the center of most of the changes. In my case, Vic started me off playing me with the kids, that's center Bob Clark and right wing Lou Morrison, both rookies, and we're going pretty good, everything considered. Then he moved me to another line, and after a few games, not too soon, he had me playing on still another line. What's happening is that me and a lot of the other guys are playing one game with certain fellas, practicing with other guys, and often playing with still other guys the next game. It's just not the way you run a hockey team. Now, Fleming's anger is being fanned by the way he's being switched around constantly, and also because he's spending more time on the bench than he figures he deserves. How do you expect me to feel, he said. Things were going real good when I was playing with Clarkie and Morrison. Maybe we weren't getting a lot of goals. They did have a red-hot training camp and were 1-2-3 in club scoring in the preseason. At least you got to admit we were getting plenty of good chances. It's when you don't get good opportunities that you got to start worrying. I'm not for one minute trying to say that Vic as coach shouldn't change a line if it isn't producing. I'm saying that he should keep the lines together for a while at least. If the guys play together steady, they get more accustomed to each other. Things will start falling into place, and I'm sure the goals will start to come. The Fire's primary problem continues to be an inept offense that has scored only 33 goals in 16 contests for an average of 2.60 goals per game so far in the 69-70 season. Now, it's interesting that Stasiak is such a proponent of mixing lines up. People may remember that he was a member of one of the best lines in history that played for the Boston Bruins in the 59-60 season. That was the famed Uke line of the Boston Bruins, which had Vic Stasiak on right wing, Bronco Horvath at center, and Johnny Busick on the left side, and that was one of the great lines. Now, Stasiak is a hard liner, and he's probably not going to take kindly to Fleming's comments. I can't see this marriage lasting very long. Don't be surprised if Reggie ends up with one of the two expansion teams that come into the NHL next season. You may remember that at the start of the season, we reported that the National Hockey League's Board of Governors gave President Clarence Campbell added authority in his fight to control stick swinging and players leaving the bench to take part in on-ice Donnybrooks. On November 27th, we got a taste of how Campbell is going to handle these types of incidents. Campbell suspended the Montreal Canadiens' John Ferguson for six games for deliberate attempt to injure Gary Sabron of the St. Louis Blues in a contest in St. Louis on November 15th. Ferguson's stick struck Sabron on the side of the head during an exchange of body checks. Campbell already had lifted Ferguson from the lineup for a Wednesday game immediately after the St. Louis contest, so he'll have to spend another five games on the sidelines. Ferguson received a match penalty and an automatic $100 fine, plus an additional $25 for a misconduct penalty, resulting from getting two majors in the game. He was also assessed $200 
for a stick swinging, bringing his individual total of fines for $325. But that's not the end of the story as far as Ferguson's financial problems will go. Because he sits out six games, he's going to lose an estimated $2,500 in salary, and that will be remitted to the league headquarters. Now, Montreal general manager Sam Pollock was livid when he heard the news. He said that uh, Ferguson appears to be the scapegoat for previous actions of other players, and what he did was really not that bad. Pollock said he had no intention of appealing the decision by Clarence Campbell, but he was not in agreement with the judgment of the president. The Canadians' manager said the referee in the St. Louis game appeared to have been influenced by the partisan crowd, and as a result, the, he called the match penalty against Ferguson for an infraction that normally would call for a high-sticking minor. Pollock said the referee's decision to call the match penalty made it mandatory for Campbell to conduct an official investigation. As a result, the league president was left with practically no alternative but to impose a suspension. We would think that if he conducted an investigation, the evidence that he uncovered would have justified the suspension, but Sam doesn't mention that. Pollock says there's no doubt that the punishment given Ferguson is the most severe in league history for this type of incident. Pollock said the Canadians also regret the complete omission of references to other incidents what took place in the game. Pollock said one of the St. Louis owners went to the referee's room at the end of the second period. The fact that this actually transpired has been acknowledged by both the president and the referee, yet Campbell didn't take any action against anybody. Pollock said the referee allowed several situations to go by which should have been penalized prior to the ferguson Sabrin incident. Further, in the linesman's report, he stated that Bob Plager deliberately skated towards Ferguson to start a fight and that prior to the above brawl, there was no, absolutely no doubt in his mind that Ferguson would have left the ice without any further incident. It's interesting to note that Plager was not assessed any additional penalty despite this evidence simply because the referee erred in not imposing an additional penalty on him. Now, Minnesota North Stars general manager Ren the Bird Blair never met a microphone he didn't like and never avoided an interview when a writer wanted to talk to him. So when Dan Stone King approached Wren in this past week and asked him about rinks around the league, Mr. Blair was more than accommodating. Wren said that uh, in Toronto, the North Stars position is literally overrun by fans of the opposition. It's only friends and fans, not foes, who create the problem in Maple Leaf Gardens. In the gardens, there's a wide area behind the visitor's bench that's used as a walkway by fans sitting behind the North Stars bench, the visiting team's bench. More often than not, it also becomes an area of impromptu reunions for people who know members of the visiting team. And that includes Blair himself, he says. He went on to say, in Maple Leaf Gardens, I've almost literally, literally carried old friends on my back up and down that bench. I guess they don't seem to realize I'm working down there. Toronto and Montreal are the toughest cities to coach in. 
Half the time I'll look down the bench and there'll be somebody draped over Bill Goldsworthy or on Ray Cullen or somebody else. They're friends or relatives of the players, so it's kind of hard on them to tell the people to get lost. Usually I'll just walk over there and explain that so-and-so is supposed to be paying attention to the game and please see them after it's over. And usually there's upwards of about 500 people outside Maple Leaf Gardens after a game in Toronto and Montreal. Wren said that the Philadelphia Spectrum presents a more hazardous challenge physically. Wren says the bench there is really, really narrow, and it's got three short benches instead of the traditional long one. They're always getting shoved out of line by the players, and I can't tell you how many times I've cracked a shin bone on one of the corners. Uh, The bird remembers one night being quite unconcerned after injuring himself on the Philly bench there in the spectrum. Wren says it's two years ago and we're in a tough game with the Flyers. Nothing, nothing in the second period. Somebody made a bad play and turned around in disgust and cracked one of my knees especially hard right on the kneecap on the bench. Just then we recovered and we scored. Bronco Horvath, who was with us at the time, turned around to me and shouted, We scored! We scored! Hit the other knee! Hit the other knee! I told him I'd break both legs if we could just win the game. In St. Louis, the fans are most exuberant, says Blair. I remember two years ago, they put a policeman down in our box to prevent any disturbances from breaking out. So there it is. Right during the game, there's this big cop standing there to protect the coach from a possible assault from the fans. Now, Blair rates the Boston fans as the worst. They're the leather jacket type. They have a certain element there in Boston who are really, really brutal. They just sit behind the bench calling our guys bums and pigs and a lot of other unprintable things. The Boston Bostonian accent just makes it all the worse. We had this one game where one lady was really on one of our guys. Finally, as he was coming off from a shift, he just looked up at her and told her to shut up. She told him, you're a poor sport, and he countered by saying, maybe, but I hear you're a pretty good one. The fans in New York, Chicago, and Detroit haven't bothered the North Stars much, according to Blair, because, he says, up until this year, we haven't really given them very much to get mad about. As the club becomes competitive, he's sure that'll change. Now, Wren finished up by saying, personally, I prefer active crowds. That's why the coast rinks, Los Angeles, Oakland, and the Pittsburgh arena are so depressing. Hockey players are entertainers, and they respond the way all entertainers respond to a great crowd. And now on to our news and notes for the week. And here's a very, very interesting item. Left winger Camille Henry, who's the 17th highest scorer in the National Hockey League, has been assigned by the St. Louis Blues to their Kansas City Blues Central Professional Hockey League farm team as a player coach. Uh, Camille is going to replace former St. Louis defenseman Fred Huckle, who remains with the Kansas City Club as the general manager. Huckle had been both general manager and coach since the start of last season. Now, Henry left St. Louis immediately for his new job. He seemed pretty excited. He told Wally Cross of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I've always thought I wanted to be a coach. Uh, This is a great opportunity to find out if I can do the job. I haven't got more than a year or two left as a player, you know. So Camille looks pretty good, and we'll keep an eye on how he does coaching the minor pros. 
And now here's a little bit of social news from the hockey world. Detroit Red Wings owner Bruce Norris, who of course unceremoniously fired his coach earlier in this season in what everybody thought was a no-class move, has been romantically linked to actress Mamie Van Doren. Name sound familiar? If you're a sports fan, it might. Mamie Van Doren is the former girlfriend of baseball player and noted playboy Bo Belinsky. Brian Cullen, former forward with the Toronto Maple Leafs and New York Rangers in the National Hockey League, has become a successful car dealer in southern Ontario. Rumor came out this week that Brian was thinking of joining the Canadian national team, and when asked, Brian said he would like to join the team if he could drop about five or six pounds. But after a little bit more consideration, it wasn't the weight that bothered Brian. It's the burgeoning business interest he has. He's being too successful. He just can't take time off the car lot, so our national team will have to get along without Brian Cullen. Word out of Boston is that veteran left winger Ron Murphy, one of the nicest guys in the game, native of Hamilton, Ontario, is out of their lineup indefinitely with a shoulder injury. Looks like Ron is going to have to have surgery and he'll be missing for probably the rest of the season. That's what we're hearing. Ron, if you remember last year, uh, rose to prominence as the left wing on the line with Phil Esposito and right winger Kenny Hodge. Here's another bit of player movement that uh, has some significance. The Los Angeles Kings have sent right winger Bill Cowboy Flett and center Brian Campbell to their American Hockey League Springfield Kings farm team. Flett, as you know, made a name over the first couple of years as a good sniper, but he seems to be a little bit lethargic in his play this season, and Campbell just hasn't been able to get things going. Now, the Kings have made a couple of call-ups from Springfield. It's right-winger Mike Corrigan, formerly in the Toronto organization. He's a good scoring right-winger. And a young center out of Western Canada by the name of Bob Butch Goring. This Goring kid is a hustler. He's a fierce checker. They say he can put the puck in the net, and we think he'll add a little life to the Los Angeles lineup. Montreal captain John Beliveau is one of the best ambassadors of hockey that you can find anywhere on the planet. John is just a wonderful PR guy, and he's going to have another public relations job, it seems. Big John is going to be representing the big boy chain of restaurants in the province of Quebec, and I'm sure they'll do well because of his involvement. Our final note this week comes out of Detroit, where Red Wings defenseman Gary Bergman missed their November 27th game. That ended Gary's consecutive game streak at 242, which was at the time the longest streak of consecutive games played in the NHL. It was a bad Charlie horse that caused Gary to miss the game. Our personality of the week is a pretty neat one this time around. He's a 36-year-old veteran of 14 National Hockey League seasons, and he's having his best year ever at this late age. It's Phil Goyette of the St. Louis Blues, who has been battling Bobby Orr of the Bruins for the lead in the NHL scoring race. Phil had been traded to the Blues in the offseason from the New York Rangers for a first-round draft pick. Now, Bob Brogue is a 
sports editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Bob is one of those American sports editors who I like because he gave lots of attention to the hockey in his city, unlike some guys like Al Abrams of Pittsburgh, who went to three games in the first three years of his team's existence. Anyway, Bob wrote a nice story about Phil, and I thought I would uh, relay a few excerpts from that story here. Now, Bob wrote that Phil Goyette is one of the nicest things to happen to the Blues through Scotty Bowman's shrewd awareness of what it takes to build a team and make a good team better. Phil was off to the best start of his 14-season career, according to Bob, and he's right. Uh, Phil was happy, of course, not to only have scored 20 points in 11 games, but he was just glad to be in St. Louis, which reminded him more of Montreal than New York, where he spent several years ever did. But he hasn't let himself get carried away by his success at finding ways and means to get goals and victories for the Blues. And he hasn't been carried away by the friendly home life he enjoys with his family in a St. Louis suburb. Phil is a consummate team player. Now he says, I'd like to wind up my career with more than 200 goals. And it's nice to be able to say you've scored more than 500 points. But winning is what counts, and winning and setting up the man with the better shot and playing hockey at both ends is what it's all about as well. I never climb over the boards onto the ice without reminding my wingers that one of us has got to get back quickly every time we lose the puck. If you don't get goals scored against you on your line when you're on the ice, the rest will work itself out. You'll win or you'll tie for sure. Phil grew up in Lachine, Quebec, a city of about 40,000 population just outside of Montreal. Phil's father was named Norbert, and he's a foundry worker, and his mother, Helen, taught school in Lachine. Now they're both retired. Phil's father, when Phil was very, very young, flooded the backyard so that his two boys could play hockey almost before they could walk. Phil's older older brother, Ray, played junior hockey on the same team as Phil, and he graduated from college and at that time in uh, history was a personnel manager at an electric company in Quebec. When Phil graduated from high school, he put in a year at Loyola, Loyola University in Montreal before he felt compelled to make a decision. Phil said, I couldn't go to college and play hockey too, so I gave myself three years in which to make the big leagues or else I'd go back to school. Well, Phil was signed by the Montreal Royals of the Quebec Hockey League in 1954, and within three years, he was filling out one of the Canadians' lines, and he enjoyed membership on the last four of Montreal's five successive Stanley Cup championship teams in the late 1950s. As a kid, Phil had idolized two of the best playmaking centers in NHL history, Montreal's Elmer Lack center of the famed punchline, and Toronto's Teeter Kennedy. As a big league player himself, Phil was most impressed by the colorful Maurice Rocket Richard and really what Quebec kid wouldn't be. Phil says Richard was the most spectacular I've ever seen. Phil's seen plenty of good ones. He says Gordie Howe is so smooth, incredibly durable, and he's great. Bobby Hull is a standout. Doug Harvey was too on defense, and Jacques Plante always gave me the confident feeling that nothing could ever get by him. Phil took it pretty hard when after seven seasons with the Canadians, 
In June 1963, he went to the Rangers in a gigantic seven-player trade that saw Gumpley Worsley go to the Habs and Plant join Goyette in the Rangers. By then, Phil had been married to former Jeanette Huot from Lachine, and they had two of their three children by that time. Their third child at the time in 1969 was only a year old. Phil said, I had my family with me only two of my six seasons in New York, and that was tough. But they're all together in Quebec in 1969, and we think that's why Phil is so happy. Now, Phil, as you know, went on to play the very next season with the Buffalo Sabres, and we'll have more about our personality of the week, Phil Goyette, this summer when he changes teams in the expansion draft. So that's our show for this week, everybody. Lots of interesting stuff going on 50 years ago, and it's getting more interesting every week. We found that so much of what happens during the past even has ramifications in our sport today, as we see as the NHL started to expand again. Well, what did we learn this week? We learned that the Ottawa police do not consider hockey players as being above the law and are completely eligible to be charged for crimes committed during the playing of their sport, much to the chagrin of hockey people everywhere. We learned that preparations for the awarding of the NHL expansion franchises were almost complete, and we knew now that Buffalo and Vancouver would be the two teams that would shortly be awarded expansion franchises. We learned that Flyers coach Vic Stasiak doesn't like some of his players and some of his players certainly don't like him and that can't bode well for Vic's longevity as Flyers coach. We learned that thanks to what many consider the greed of governors of the NHL, there are people who are considering the establishment of a rival major hockey league which would attempt to lure players away from the NHL. Remember this is 1969. 1972 was not too far away and there are a lot of significant events that are going to take place then that the framework is being laid out now. Well hope you join us weekly and follow along as the 1969 hockey season unfolds. This should be a fun ride with lots more of interesting uh, features and stories to come. We'll return next week with some more news. Some of the stories we're working on include the formal announcement of the expansion of the NHL to 14 teams, as we've been talking about so much. We will learn how the NHL teams will meet the ever-increasing demand for talent that comes along with expansion, and we'll hear some speculation about who's going to be running the hockey operations in Buffalo and Vancouver, plus much more. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our intro music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage, and other musical pieces are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at our sponsor, newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years, and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey, and at our WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, where we make announcements about the Twitter feed and about the uh, podcast, and we'll probably also do a few stories as well. If you got some time this week, give a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole. It's a really unique program in which he interviews 
uh, celebrities from around the Winnipeg music, news, and entertainment scenes. And at the end of the podcast, they've produced an actual song, and it's pretty good, very interesting. If you like good conversation and good music, give that one a listen. Thanks so much for joining us again this week, and we'll see you next time. When the 